0: like saying, I love Jesus, but not the church. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and you hold strongly to a personal relationship you have with Jesus, but you've been hurt by church communities over the years, and it's begun to feel more and more like a hindrance than a help to your relationship with God. Maybe you've been serving in church for many years, volunteering your time constantly, and you've grown tired at the feeling of being unthanked and forgotten. Perhaps you're on the brink of burnout and you want to quit the difficult relationships entirely and start over in a new community of your choosing. Perhaps there's certain people in church that you've grown accustomed to avoiding because you believe you have these irreconcilable differences. Scripture has a great deal to say about each of these circumstances. But the first point we find in our verse this morning is the duty of love. Look at verse 22, the duty of love. It says we must love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Many sermons could be preached on the love of one's enemies, and just as many could be preached on the love of God. But the verse this morning directs us specifically to love one another. In chapter 4 of 1 Peter, in verse 8, he'll say, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And immediately, we find the purpose that Peter gives for elevating love to such a place of importance. Peter's readers in this first century context were mocked by society, and they were continually tempted to return to the idolatry of their former life. If these first-century Christians turned bitter towards each other, then it weakened their community and it made them more vulnerable to apostasy. That's abandoning the faith. And so on a spiritual level, this is parallel to an ancient political and military tactic, which is called divide and conquer. The first-century Jewish historian Josephus mentions that it was by dividing up the Jews into five different regions, that the Romans were able to suppress revolts. Or maybe in your own house, when you're playing a game, you've noticed the strategy of turning your siblings against one another so that your path to victory is more clear. Of course, in my house, this never works as all of my roommates are remarkably unified in their desire to see me lose at all costs. (laughs) But nevertheless, the principle is a valid one. And that is, if you can foster an internal division amongst the enemy, it weakens their resistance. So how much more so is this true in the Christian life? The world, the devil, our flesh love nothing more than to divide Christians by seeing them bitter towards each other. The sad reality is, just as it can be easier to love our friends at times than our own blood family, so too It's often easier to love non-Christians than our own spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter tells us specifically what kind of love we should have. He calls it a brotherly love. Look again in verse 22. He takes one of the Greek words for love, phileo, and the other word for brother, adelphos, and he combines them into this term Philadelphia, brotherly love. Now, note that this isn't phileo as in instead of agape, which is a a different word for love in Greek. He uses both terms. If you look in verse 22, what is called a sincere brotherly love is Philadelphia, and then immediately he says, love one another. That's agape. And I believe they're being used interchangeably here. So it's not a weaker form of love. But secondly, I want you to also know that in the context of the first century, in Greco-Roman society, This term was used not just for male-to-male love, but it was also for sisters. It was about kinship. It was about family. And much like today, in the first century, there was a city called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it was included in the region that Peter is writing this letter to. And so the readers of this letter would have known that Philadelphia usually refers to blood relatives, and now, they find the term applied to their own Christian community. And this is because with Jesus, family isn't determined by the blood of your parents, it's determined by the blood that He shed. He says in Matthew 12 that anyone who does the will of His Father in heaven is His brother, sister, and mother. And the same is true for you. Now you could tell me, oh, but Zach, you don't know my family. You you don't understand. They are the most exhausting, difficult people to be around. You, You don't understand. Sure, sure, I love them. But do I have to like them? Perhaps you've thought that before. Amazingly, our verse addresses this as well. Look again in verse 22. Consider how it says we are to love earnestly. This term also has the idea of fervently or even strained it's the same word that's used, by, it's used of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke when he's praying fervently, earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane while he's sweating drops of blood. Peter knows that this kind of familial love isn't going to be easy, but he's saying it must be pursued. And here, I think it can be tempting to overly stress um, the love as an action separated from emotion at all. We often tell ourselves, do the right thing even if you don't feel like it. And of course, it is true in a sense, we must pursue love even when we don't have warm and fuzzy feelings. But I also want to remind you, remember that the goal we're to pursue is to have the heart of Christ. And that is the kind of emotional life that's in accordance with what's true we must not forget, it is possible to be sacrificial, even lay down your life for someone, and yet not love. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's often called the love chapter of the Bible. And in verse 3, he says, if I give all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Mere external sacrifice without any true affection in the heart is not the kind of love we are called to have. Rather, Peter tells us we are to love from a pure heart, and that means a heart that's unhindered by the vices that we're going to find in verse 1 of chapter 2. That is a heart that has a single purpose. It's holistic. It includes the emotions. It's all of you. This is how John puts it in his letter. First John chapter three. He says, "Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." So yes, love in action, but pursue the kind of character that is truly reflected in that action, have the character of Christ. I really like this definition of love given by John Piper. He says, Love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. Consider there's a vertical relation and a horizontal relation. You must first have this overflow of joy in God to truly love others. But once you are truly full and abundant joy of God, then you're able to pour out and give to others. And this is how we know it's only the heart that's been reborn by God that can truly love one's brother. And that is because true love for one's neighbor has to flow from a heart that loves God first. Once again, we turn to 1 John which is very similar to First Peter in many regards. He says in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So my heart breaks when I hear those who profess to love Christ but can't care to attend church. Or maybe they've been hurt, so they refuse to love Christ's body, of which they are a part Someone that truly loves Christ will naturally love what he loves because they share his nature, and he loves the church. So that brings us to the grounds of our love. Our second point, the grounds of our love. What's the basis of this pure heart of love? How is it formed? On what grounds is it shaped? We're given two explanations, and I hope you have your Bibles with me. Look carefully at the text, verse 22 and 23. We have two clauses, two causes of this love. The first is a sincere is being purified in your souls, having purified your souls. The beginning of verse 22. The second, the beginning of 23, is having been born again. And I want you to ask yourself this question as you look at the verses. Both of these are referring to a past action that shape a present reality. Purifying the souls was in the past. You have been born was in the past, but it establishes who you are today. Now, can, ask yourself, which comes first? Did we purify ourselves in order to be born again? Or are we born again so that we can purify ourselves? We could look at other verses that might try and help us explain this. In James chapter 4, there's a command to sinners to cleanse their hands and purify Their hearts. And so that implies that first you must purify yourself. And yet, if we go to 1 John 3, we have those that are already children of God, they're told that they purify themselves by hoping in the future appearance of Christ. And that implies you're born again first. So which is it? Well, maybe neither are first. Perhaps it's a matter of perspective. And I think that's the answer. Let me be utterly clear. The moment of conversion is a divine work of God, where we're brought into new life by the gift of grace through the precious blood of Christ. We saw this just a few verses earlier in verses 19 and 20. We were bought with the precious blood of Christ. Now, the phrase, you have been born, is passive. You don't birth yourself No credit is given to the baby when they're born. The credit is given to the mother, to the one doing the birthing. And so too, we are born of God and all glory is to him. And yet, in our experience, we are called to respond to the word of the gospel through faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so this is what the phrase obedience to the truth means, we find in verse 22. It is obedience to the word of God to repent. And so I think it's helpful to see how Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 15. This is the way he describes it. He said that when the Gentiles heard the gospel and the word of the gospel, they believed God and cleansed their heart by faith. So why does this matter? It's because the purpose of your soul's purification is so that you can reflect the character of God by being in right relationship with your spiritual brothers and sisters. That's what love is about in this chapter, right relationship with your brothers and sisters. And this glorifies God because it shows you've been born of him. And so even more importantly, the way you were spiritually born is profoundly different from your physical birth. You've been given an eternal life from the divine life of love, which is a source of life that will never die or perish. The streams of life that are running into your soul will never run dry, for the word of God abides forever. So think about how this shapes the difficulties and the trials that you face in your life. There's no devastation. There's no loss of relationship of intimacy on this earth that could diminish the call for you to love. And it can't harm the grounds of your love because the grounds of your love is the word of God. And this is why Peter quotes Isaiah 40. These verses, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah was prophesying to the Jewish people in captivity in Babylon at the time of the sixth century. Their families had been torn apart. Their temple was destroyed. Any structure or institution of identity that they had was ripped away. And yet, ultimately, the glory of the Babylonian kingdom would fade. And the promises of God, that they would be delivered out of exile, is what lasted. And so too, Christians throughout the Roman provinces in the first century experienced social alienation, and yet the word of God bound their community together into genuine fellowship. And so I ask you this morning, what could embolden your love more than knowing that the challenges you faced aren't going to last? Peter and Isaiah refer to the hot desert wind and withering vegetation as pictures of human frailty. The life cycle of plants is short. And in some of your homes, it's probably shorter than others. And plants have a real beauty in their own place. But we know, inevitably, they're going to fade away with time. So ask yourself, what basis Of your love, what is the basis of your love for your spiritual family? Think of the people that you love the most. Why do you love them? Is it a common interest that you have? Maybe it's a gift you've received from them, the time that you enjoy spending together, a personality that you enjoy? These are all good things. I don't mean to minimize them, but to place them in their right context. The basis of your love for one another must be the new life you share through the word of God. And that's because it remains forever, even when those other things will fade. If that is the basis, then the grounds for loving a Christian brother and sister will never be removed. So if we know what kind of character we're pursuing and the soil upon which it develops, then how do we actually grow our love? And this brings us to our last point the growth of love. Verses 1 through 3 of the second chapter. First, we need to look at the kinds of things that prevent our love for one another. And so here we have a list of vices that were commonly given by Stoic philosophers in the time of the first century. These moralists and ethical teachers knew that these vices were opposed to a strong community. And yet they didn't know that true love came from the source, that is Jesus Christ. Now again, I ask you, do a heart inspection. Ask yourself, be honest with yourself. Is there a Christian that you either know now or have known in the past that you have a difficult time working with, that you have a difficult time caring for? Maybe they receive recognition for work that you believe you could have done better. Perhaps you'd never go so far as to say you hate them. That's that's too much. But you know that if you could choose not to serve with them, if you could choose to avoid them, you would. Maybe you find them arrogant, insensitive. Maybe there's some flaw they have which is so obvious to you it makes you feel justified in your lack of affection for them. Maybe this causes you to speak poorly about the person, insult them behind their back. It could simply be grumbling or complaining, not even said out loud, just spoken against this brother or sister in your heart, forgetting (coughs) that the Lord reads the hearts. (coughs) This same word for slander at the end of verse 1 is used in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, for the Israelites who were complaining to God and Moses about being in the wilderness. Slander includes this kind of grumbling and complaining. So now ask yourself, how can you grow in your love for that person? Here we find Peter urging us to throw aside all of the barriers that stop us from growing in our love, like deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all summarized in that first term, malice. From a worldly perspective, love is autonomous and free. You choose who you want to love and you choose who you want to speak slanderously about. You choose who you want to be in community with, and when you want to let envy motivate your ambition. And the sad reality of our human condition is that any large social gathering is going to be at the great risk of these destructive vices. And it's only by the supernatural power of God that they can be overcome. Look across this room. Think of how remarkably diverse this community is. We have multiple nationalities, cultures, denominational, theological backgrounds even. And yet we're all united because of the power of the word of God to create new life in us. So I ask you this morning, which of these vices that I've listed, that we've read, are you the most tempted by? that you struggle with the most when it comes to that person in the Christian community that you find difficult to love. Identify the vice. Ask God to open your heart so you can identify it in yourself so that you know how your heart responds poorly because that's essential for throwing it off like the dirty clothes that we're called to put away and be changed. So finally, what positively can be done to grow in your love with your brother and sister. And to that, I give you this, grow in your love of God by taking in his word and tasting his presence. Look at verse two of chapter two. It says we are to long for pure spiritual milk. Now this term spiritual is very rare. It only occurs twice in the New Testament and translators have found it difficult to translate. The word is "logikos," and it's sometimes translated milk Of the word or a reasonable milk. The context, I think, helps us understand its meaning. I think it's unlikely that Peter is using the milk metaphor exclusively to refer to the written word of God. Because if you look at the end of verse three, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Or if you look at the beginning of verse two, Peter says, We're to be like newborn infants. So there's clearly a connection in the metaphor between infants and their milk. And I think it's helpful to know, again, that the Stoic philosophers of the time used the term logikos for what was rational in the sense of what is in line with ultimate reality. In fact, they often used a a shorter word called the logos. And for them, the logos was the unifying principle of reality is what made it possible for you to engage with reality in a rational way. Now, for the Stoic philosophers, of course, it's utterly impersonal. And John takes that word from their terminology, logos, and he says the logos became flesh. In John 1, we say the word became flesh. The logos is the person of Jesus Christ. And I think Peter's doing something similar here. Here. He's saying it's true to nature for infants to long for pure milk. And so too, as a child of God, you must long for spiritual food. It's only by being nourished on spiritual food that you'll grow up into what he calls salvation. That is the ultimate deliverance of earthly suffering that you're longing for. Consider the elderly among us. Here's what's so beautiful about the beginning of verse 2. Peter pictures us all as newborn infants. Consider when we think of those that we aspire to be like, that we aspire to imitate because we've seen them walk faithfully in Christian character and service for decades. Even they are called newborn infants. Even they are babes hungering for further righteousness. In other places in scripture, being fed milk is a sign of immaturity. It's not a good thing. But here, Peter is using the imagery positively. So again, this morning, I ask you, do you crave the scriptures like a newborn craves its mother's milk? Do you crave the presence of God like a deer that thirsts and comes panting for the water? Ever since the fall, Mankind's sin has separated him from God's presence, which he enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And the goal of our life is to return to dwell in the house of God. Think of yourself every day as a weary traveler, exhausted from your journeys, and you come to God longing for a meal in his presence. You seek the warmth and the comfort of his hospitality, eating and drinking with him in fellowship, in peace. If you've ever feared reading the book of Leviticus, that's what it's all about. What I just described, <laughs> the tabernacle, the offerings, all of this detailed ritual instruction, it's all God's way of saying, come have a meal with me. This is why the psalmist can say, like we read in the beginning of the service, taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 36, He says that the children of God feast on the abundance of your house. So whether it was the tabernacle in the time of Leviticus or the temple in the time of the kings, the ritual offerings and the old covenant culminated after the ascension offering and the tribute offering, they culminated in the peace offering and the peace offering was a communal meal that the worshiper and the priest offered up and ate in the presence of God. Even the yearly Passover itself was a communal meal in the presence of God. So, how do we approach God's presence and taste his goodness today? Yes, it's found in the word which testifies to him. But even more so, I would say, in the Lord's Supper. Communion. This is our spiritual food. It engages our physical senses but it communicates a profound spiritual reality. I warn you, not everyone who tastes this bread and drinks of this cup will truly taste the Lord because he can only be received by faith. But for those of you this morning who do receive this elements in faith, I have a great promise and assurance to you, and that is that God's presence is with us in this meal. So may his goodness and his generosity to be with us, grow our love for those that we are with as we all feast together. So let's pray.